Hey, this is Roshan Agnew, and you're listening to 12 Angry Minutes, a show about art and anger. So this is the bit where I go off script and I chat to you guys a little bit. Um, I'm not just trying to seduce you with my super husky, sexy voice, although I am. But I, I also happen to be sitting under a duvet in my house in Lisbon, where I currently live, because uh, they're really fond of tooting the old car horn here in Lisbon, and it's uh, pretty hard to get a clean recording unless I literally hide under my duvet even though it's three degrees outside. So, hello, everybody. I'm Roisin Agnew. I am the editor of Guts magazine. Uh, I'm also a freelance journalist and writer. Some of you who are listening to this might be here because you are familiar with Guts. Guts is a magazine of confessional writing and illustration that I've been running for the past two and a half years. And um, we have branched out into the podcast world. Why podcasts? So anyone who knows me knows that I wander around uh, listening to audio um, and always have done since I was a child. I listen to about 15 hours of audio a week and so I uh, I really wanted to extend guts into the podcast arena uh, in a small way. Uh, but it's my first time doing this so bear with me if I fuck up or if I'm really dull I will improve. This is the worst thing you've ever heard. It will be the worst thing you've ever heard. I will improve. I promise you that. Um, but we are going to retain some of the things that made Guts um, what it was, which is we're going to have some very personal interviews on the podcast, um, and we're also going to be seeing some familiar uh, faces or voices. Um, a little podcast humor for you there, um, who were people who were maybe past contributors to Guts. So it is very much still the Guts family. So why have we called the podcast 12 Angry Minutes and why are we doing a podcast about anger? I guess we wanted to do a podcast about anger because it really felt like it was, I hate to use the word, but I'm going to do it like in the zeitgeist. It feels like suddenly being angry, protesting and being against things, being anti is acceptable and... um sort of even, uh, you know, kind of there's a sort of coolness to it um, at the moment. But we wanted to understand better kind of how this had happened, but also kind of just talk about anger a little bit more. This came also because of a personal experience of mine, um, keeping it uh, confessional. I started going to cognitive behavioral therapy in January of this year. Um as some of you no doubt know, cognitive behavioral therapy is a form of therapy that looks into teaching you techniques and strategies to deal with negative behavioral patterns. And my negative behavioral pattern was anger, losing my temper. And I met my super cool shrink, um, Trish. She's like got a buzz cut. She's like extremely witty and dry, like made like an incest joke on my first session very into Trish 
And Trish uh, said something to me when we were talking about my anger. She said, you know, anger is good, it's necessary, and it gets a really bad rep. And that really got me thinking, like, it's true. We attach a lot of stigma to anger. It's something we kind of teach people to not do and teach children not to engage in. And there's, you know, a whole kind of you know, mindfulness, yoga, everything, meditation is all also geared to suppressing angry thoughts, which, you know, I do all of the things I've listed above, so I, I completely understand why people engage in it. But at the same time, anger is like a catalyst for things, particularly um, for artists. Anger can be as great a source of inspiration as, say, the feeling of falling in love or depression can be. So with 12 Angry Minutes, we want to address and study and chat about anger as a sort of source for good and for creative inspiration. Um, so there's a couple of things that we're going to be repeating each week. Um, and that is, well, we're bi-weekly, so each episode we're going to be repeating a couple of things. One of them is we are going to have a audio suggestion for you each week and this week the suggestions are right on the podcast front our recommendation this week is criminal part of the radiotopia podcast network criminal is presented by phoebe judge a woman with the best voice for radio that i can think of and it is fascinating what it does is it looks at crime from all sorts of different facets the last episode i listened to looked at the first um, trial where the defense used PMS as an excuse, uh, excuse, I, I think that was um, a little biased on my part, but they used PMS as a defense. So it looks into all these very peculiar stories, highly recommend. Our audiobook recommendation for this week is Going Solo, Roald Dahl's memoir of being an RAF fighter pilot in um, Africa and Greece uh, during World War II. It's read by the extremely dishy Dan Stevens. I actually cannot recommend it enough. It's major fizzy knickers material. Also every week we'll be coming at you with a um, quote about anger. Now it won't be a good thing about anger or a bad thing about anger. It'll just be a quote that got us thinking a little bit more about anger. So here we go. This week we got your boy Aristotle up with a heavy quote. Anybody can be angry, that is easy, but to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose, that is not within everybody's power and is not easy. Thank you, Aristotle. So our first guest on 12 Angry Minutes is Jesse Jones, the artist representing Ireland at the Venice Biennial this year. Jesse is a extremely acclaimed artist who works mainly in film uh, and physical theater. She often has big groups of people involved in her work. She's worked everywhere from Australia to South Korea to LA. And she was the perfect choice really for our first episode because she's someone who has incorporated anger and dissent and protest into her work for a very long while. Without further ado, here is Jesse Jones on 12 Angry Minutes. Jesse, welcome to 12 Angry Thank Minutes. You. We're delighted to have you. you. So a few people will probably 
not be familiar with your work, which, let's be fair, is quite difficult to maybe describe to someone. How would you describe your work to someone who's never heard of you before? Um, I suppose mostly I kind of make film and performance work. I kind of think about cultural production as a space where you can articulate dissent. So you would often see my work in relationship to kind of feminist discourse or um, general kind of like political dissent in terms of how artistic ideas can open up new ways of thinking or move through kind of nar- historical narratives in a different way than, say, history or other types of um, research. So Dissent is sort of the focal point of a lot of your work. I know that when I was like I knew who you were and I knew some of your work. And when I decided to do the podcast, I just thought Jesse Jones would be perfect because everything you seem to have been focusing on over the last few years or that I've been aware of since I've been aware of you has been the idea of dissent and resistance. And I wonder how the world around you has changed over the last couple of years that you've been working and that your practice of kind of exploring capitalism and dissent, how the fact that there has been a huge shift Mm. where like the concept Mm. of anger and resistance is on everybody's tongues at the moment. How has that impacted your work? Um, I I think one of the things that I've always felt is that we're very close to history. It's like in our everyday experience. So, you know, the kind of studying history allows us to be able to see the warning signs of of what's happening in the current moment. And people who are attuned to that would be quite frightened and angry with what's happening in the world now. So um, how quickly things can can shift is also, they can also shift the other way as well. So I think, you know, there is an amazing rising dissent. And, you know, I, I, I was involved in um, like like feminist activism when I was a student in NCAD 10 years ago. And it was hard work because it was hard to, you know, win the argument. And I just think that it's much more open. It's much, we're much more angry now. Um, I mean, like, I felt for years that I had to police the way I talked about um, abortion. And I definitely don't feel I have to do that anymore, you know. So I think, you know, there's a lot of really strong voices um, on our side now. I I was wondering, um, for those listeners who don't know, Jesse has like exhibited the world over. You've worked in L.A., you've worked in um, New York, you've worked in South Korea, you've yeah. worked in where else have you worked? You've worked everywhere. Australia. Australia. Yeah, spent a good bit of time. You spent there. a really yeah. a good bit of time. And I, I'm wondering, I feel like there's a real mystique around the Irish artist and how they live. Mm, mm. And you are sort of someone who also wouldn't maybe fit the bill of what we conceive of yeah. as the average Irish artist. Yeah. How is it for Jesse Jones to be an Irish artist? Mm, okay, good question. Uh, I never, I I was asked this question actually two days ago as well. And um, I I was thinking actually, the thing that really resonates with me as being an Irish artist is is more so, you know, how I came to end up in art school was um, the was the first year where it, it was, it was not fee paying. And I was the first person in my entire family, like extended family, like for generations, like the whole family who ever went to college. And I think, you know, the class system is something that really affects how we perceive people who are, you know, in 
seriously involved in kind of cultural production in this country who gets access to that kind of privilege. Um, so I don't fit the norm, unfortunately, because we have like a class system that... Fortunately, you, know, you don't. Yeah, I don't fit the norm because because of that. You know, there, I think there's a lot of um, things around how we value culture in this country that, that could really change, you know. I don't think going to college is the thing that makes you into a good artist at all, though, you know. I think we have to diversify how we appreciate who has a voice and who makes what, you know. Yeah, I'm interested in what you said there, the idea that in Ireland we have to change the way we value culture. What do you mean about, what do you mean? I think, you know, I think that, that a lot of great stuff happens in so many different places and at so many different levels. And, you know, I think people kind of patch on the head and go, oh yeah, you're an artist, you know. But I think um, just from other places I've travelled, uh, I think people really, they, they're not intimidated by art. And I think here in Ireland, we're we're a little bit afraid of it. We think it's like messy and unhygienic and, you know, don't get too close it'll contaminate you um, and I think we just need to be less fearful of it You were doing art that kind of had very strong political messages in them even like in the in the noughties and um, it's odd to me because it feels like at the time particularly there wasn't a taste or an appetite for that kind of anger since we're on a podcast about anger but there wasn't an appetite for anger then. And I think it's interesting to think that you were someone who is literally dedicated their work. Been angry for ages. Been <laughs> You've been angry for ages. Been angry for exactly. Ages. You've been angry yeah. for ages. And now you are representing Ireland at the Biennial, which is the biggest, most prestigious art fair, essentially, in the world. And I just think, well, I personally am delighted because I feel like someone who has been so politically committed as you have been that's who we want representing you know artistic Ireland outside but I wonder have you how did you like as you're saying you're someone who first generation in college how did you before you even developed your art practice how did you develop your political commitment and ideology um I suppose, you know, I grew up in a family that would have been really heavily involved with trade union politics and um, like was brought to the rent strikes when I was a kid. So it it's not really that I came to my politics. It's kind of the politics was always open. The front door was there. You know, I grew up in a council estate in Tala, um, born in St. Michael's estate. So I had a I mean, notorious. Yeah, estate. but I mean, I, I, I. I have a very privileged life, you know, I, you know, I have like an amazing life. I'm not kind of saying that it's ever um, kind of changed too much. But I do think that, you know, if you grow up in in that way, you can't help but being political. I just I'm very lucky that I have, you know, agency to be critical of that. Um, but I, my friend said recently, um that she was doing some research into St. Michael's Estate and she found this uh, document, these minutes from a council meeting and it was a council meeting in which, in like the 70s, in which they decided that they would take away the skirting board from the design plan because it would save so much money. And I got really emotional because I was like, Jesus, that's what was wrong. Like I, I was in those rooms like growing up and I remember the floor and the ceiling 
and the walls were just this one continuous thing, you know. And I remember I didn't see skirting boards until I was about 10 and I was like, oh my God, they make such a difference. Like, so I've got a bit of a fetish about that. But it's just that kind of thing, like your it's entire amazing. spatial reality yeah. is is a political thing. There's yeah. no escaping it. Yeah. If you, if you don't have to be political, if you don't have to understand politics, you're in a very privileged situation. But, you know. The next time you don't notice a skirting board, check yeah, your privilege. There's just something, you know, there's just something. Yeah. You know, you can feel it. It's it, like politics is a tactile experience. Mm. You know, it gets close to you. You don't get close to it. It's like, it's all around you. If you're not conscious of it, wake up. You can find 12 Angry Minutes on Twitter at thisheadstuff and at guts underscore magazine. So tell us, what are you bringing? How are you repping Ireland at Venice? Yeah, um, I've been working with Alwyn Fure, who's incredible. Um, and Susan Stenger, an amazing sound artist and composer. Yeah. So Alwyn Fure is, some would know her, she is sort of the high priestess of Irish theatre. I think that that's a fair summation yeah, of Alwyn. Yeah. She has long um, white hair and she's a dancer and she's in maybe her 60s and stuff and she's got an incredible uh, sort of mastery of her body and manages to sort of she's a hugely physically expressive yeah. um, actor and so what's the piece called? Um, it's called Tremble Tremble and in Italian it's Tremate Tremate and the title is taken from the um, 1970s uh, feminist movement in Italy and they described it as you know the return of the witches so it was a moment when there was a, a reawakening of consciousness about what had happened to women historically in Europe um, and how the processes of um, liberation, feminist liberation, had to take into account the process of um, patriarchal domination and capitalism. So the the kind of calling on the, the return of the witch or the voice of the witch is kind of almost taking back this sense of female power um, and the dispossession of that female power during the witch trials is kind of something I'm interrogating. Is you know how could that how can that massive historical dispossession be reversed? How can we take back our power? Which leads us perfectly into what Jesse is here to be pissed off about. Jesse, your twelve angry minutes are coming up, and you are going to be talking to us about the idea of the witch trials leading on to what we're experiencing in Ireland with repeal the 8th. You're on the clock, Jesse Jones, go. First thing I'd like to do is just read a little description of Caliban and the Witch. So this is this amazing book by Sylvia Federici. And I first read this with my really good pal, Sarah Brown. We went out into onto the bull wall and uh, it was like six in the morning. We're total nerds. We went out into the bull wall like in a storm and we like had the copy of the book and we burned like some um, dragon's bloods and we were trying to like, you know, channel this kind of witch knowledge. And we read the book and we, we sat and we read for hours because we just had never understood, you know, it's like, it's like the veil is lifted. It's like you can see for the first time, like everything that's constructed around you as reality actually comes from somewhere and is really deliberate. Caliban and the Witch shows that the body has been for women in capitalist society, what the factory has been for male wage workers. 
the primary ground for their exploitation and resistance. The female body has been appropriated by the state and men and forced to function as a means for the reproduction and accumulation of labour. So, you know, this kind of moment of realisation that the process of the making of the modern world comes from this really violent moment, which is the witch trials in the 16th and 17th century. And one of the books that Sylvia Federici referenced as this huge kind of pinnacle moment when the, when the world, the white male world turns on women is a moment when they released this book called The Malleus Maleficarum, which was published in the same year as Columbus set sail for America. It's at this really in, like important moment in history. And myself and Sarah went into Trinity and they had like a copy of it from like the 17th century. Of course, was, Trinity College yeah, always has these amazing, amazing manuscripts. But you could feel the book like vibrating with violence. And as we turned the pages, the, the things that they were describing, you know, you could see how much thought they put into constructing this kind of demonology around women. And the people that they were going after were midwives. They were wise women. They were people who had agency. You know, women who had land that people wanted. Um, and Sylvia Federici kind of frames this as an, as, a, as an intense moment of, you know, deliberate ideological persecution that results in massive amount of violence. So we don't really see, generally we don't really see any interference with women's ability to, you know, childbear. We don't see any interference to that until we get to the process of early capitalism in Europe. And the reason why it happens is after they enclose the commons and create private property, right? Europe goes through this massive economic crisis because all the people who now have to work and toil on this land that used to be common land, they don't have as many, the population, you know, goes down because people are not as, you know, well-fed. There's massive famines. So there's a population crisis. So all, they need workers for this land that they've privatised. And because they need workers, they start to persecute women who have the ability to control their own body autonomy and to plan when they would have children. So things like the quickening and inducing the menses. And, you know, there's a whole body of female knowledge around reproduction at this time. And what they systematically do is they annihilate all that agency and all that power. So the thing I'm really angry about is that the Eighth Amendment in the Irish Constitution is in a historical line that begins in Europe around the 16th and 17th century and is continuous to that, to what we have in Ireland today. So I feel like a witch. I feel like a witch when I talk about the Eighth Amendment because I want the Eighth Amendment taken out of the Constitution. I think it's violent. I think people who've believed that the Eighth Amendment is about like the life of a fetus being equal to a woman. People who think that's okay, that's a form of violence against women. We are experiencing then, from what you were saying, we are experiencing a form of witch trial in this country that orbits around the idea that we are childbearing slaves as Irish yeah. women. Yeah, we are childbearing slaves. And, you know, I think one of the things that's been brilliant about the repeal movement is the amount of amazing women in this country, so articulate, so incredible. And 
you know, I had this moment with a group of young feminists the other day who who are involved in this great project called Ban on Tea. They were talking about, you know, it's really hard to be a woman in Ireland today, you know, with the Eighth Amendment and all this. And I was like, actually, I like, you know, I think it's a great time. It's a great time. It's a great time because it's you know, what you're saying, like, yeah, traumata, traumata, it's yeah, the return of the witches. Yeah, I feel trembling. like we're all rising. Yeah. But even even to the analogy of slavery, I think is really important because the unpaid worker who is forced into bodily, you know, substitute. There, there's a there's a kind of moment in that where you can actually say oh, I'm Spartacus and say, you know, saying that you're a slave is the first act of being able to liberate yourself out of slavery, you know. And we were talking about, um, it was the anniversary of Harriet Tubman yeah. um, the other day. And we were talking about actually, you know, the, 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 the really famous thing, the really amazing thing that she said was, you know, after she freed so many slaves and was really incredible in, in how she, she kind of mobilized this amazing descent. So Harriet Tubman, for those uh, who don't know, she was the person... Slavery abolitionist. Exactly. Famous for the Underground mm. Railroad that freed... Many, yeah. many slaves. Yeah. But the, the famous thing she said was, you know, when she was asked, you know, you've freed so many slaves. You, how, how does that feel? She goes, I wish I had been able to. I would have been able to free more, only they didn't know they were slaves. You know, so that sense of at least now we can see it. We can see what, what they think of us. We've what woken up to the reality yeah. as, a, as a culture. I, I, and I do, I do think that we need to wake up to it. But I do think that actually, you know, I think that we need to go to another place to, with this. I think we need to be more radical. I think we need to be more radical in, in terms of what we want from repeal. So are we talking about radical protests? What are demands being more radical? What do we mean by radical? Well, I think that we need to see it in relationship to the history of the development of capitalism and, and relate you know, there's a there's a relationship. If you see it in relationship to the history of capitalism and oppression, it it relates to things like homelessness. The reason why we have homelessness in Ireland is because we value private property more than we value human life and the quality of human life. Like that's connected to the reason why we have the Eighth Amendment because we value the reproduction of workers in the form of childbirth more than we value the lives of women. women. You know, yeah. so I mean, the kind of society we have is based around exploitation mm -hmm. and the, it's the exploitation of women, the exploitation of of um, migrants, the exploitation across the board in relationship to capitalism. And do you feel, therefore, we should have a more radical form of protest for repeal the eighth? Do you feel that like in many ways? And I suppose I think I this has crossed my mind also that in order to gain as many people as possible, as many supporters as possible and involve as many different sorts of committees, councils yeah, yeah. and activists as possible. Repeal, the repeal campaign has had to, you know, become a, a, a bit of a toothless sort of protest. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have a real sort of aggression to it because, you know, I remember when people were discussing why repeal was always going to be much harder to get than marriage equality. Yeah. It was the idea of just how virulently people loathed the idea of bodily autonomy and yeah. the idea of abortion yeah. for women, that yeah. there was a real violent yeah. dislike and hate towards it. So the idea was to ha 
to take the sting, to take the hate out of the way we talk about repeal. And I think it's worked brilliantly. Yeah. But I think repeal needs to expand into a kind of social movement like the water charges. You know, it needs to expand into other and relate to other parts of the social movement. I'm an anti-capitalist feminist, you know. So, like, that's my politics. So, you know, I think that it's a the repeal movement is like an amazing radicalizing force for a generation of Irish women, and now, like, now is the time to go deeper into that. And to t- when we talk about taking down the patriarchy, let's let's really take it down. How exciting! Very exciting. So, so okay. So Jesse is angry about the trial, the witch trial that's going on in Ireland at the moment. Are we going to find some form of redemption or some form of peace in your peace that's going to Venice Biennale? Um, yeah, the peace itself, um, I describe as a kind of witching of the Irish pavilion at Venice. Um, Alwyn is incredible and, you know, she's she's made a really beautiful kind of performance in this in this film. So I think pr- perhaps there is something redemptive, but I think... It's also, you know, the great thing about being an artist is, you know, I can be this really angry working class woman, but when I make art, I can be far more kind of, you know, liquid or fluid or kind of move in a different way, in a more agile way, in a more dreamlike manner. So I think there's anger in Tremate, Tremate, Tremble, Tremble, but there's also something that kind of pushes towards uh, uh, and something else that we could experience like what would it feel like there's a moment in the film where there's a sense of like rock and roll potential in this witch and you know one of the things I said to Alwyn for this particular scene we were shooting was you know it needs to feel a bit of rock and roll like imagine if the patriarchy never happened but we still had rock music like what would that feel like <laughs> you know what would that feel like so that sense of like, what if there was a different version of history? And I think art's a really amazing place to propose something that's completely different than the reality that we inhabit. And I think that fundamentally that allows us to open up to different ways of thinking about what's possible for us in the world. And I think that's something that really we need to challenge ourselves, you know, in the world today in, t- in terms of our expectation of what's possible for, for us from reality. We've just ended up in a bit of a cul-de-sac of imagination, actually, that we end up again with fascism, again with misogyny, again with the legalisation of domestic violence in Russia. You know, why does this happen to us over and over and over again when we do have the potential to imagine things and make things entirely otherwise? What do you think is the solution to this witch trial? Can we bring it to an end? Um, yeah, I think the first thing we have to do is acknowledge it. The really frightening thing is I, I met with Sylvia Federici um, a couple of months ago at an amazing event called Shift in Loyalties in Pendle, which was the site of this really famous witch trial. And she talked about the times we live in as being as dangerous as the 15th century was for women. Because whatever, whatever is happening in this moment, capitalism is transitioning into something else and we don't know what it is yet. 
So it's a moment of of really intense change and violence. And it can go two ways. It can go to the most abhorrent version of humanity that we could ever imagine in our worst nightmares. Or it could go the other way. It could go somewhere incredible where we actually change the, because everything is up in the air. It has to land some way. So the thing that really inspires me about Ireland is that women are leading the way in terms of a shift in consciousness. Everywhere else I went in the world last year, you know, there was this rise of fascism, this xenophobia, this really disgusting fear of the other. But in Ireland, there wasn't that. And I think it's because we were, we were taking up enough space, actually, for the first time. Women were taking up a lot of space. We were saying, no, hang on, the conversation stays here. And I think that that's what we need to do. We need to take up as much political and cultural space as women. And we need to spread that across through all the other parts of, of social discourse. You know, the repeal movement needs to expand its politics and really challenge how do we take down the capitalist patriarchy. Well, the rise of the witches and tearing down the capitalist patriarchy, that was Jesse Jones still looking pretty fucking pissed off. Don't think we've solved that one. Jesse, thank you so much and good luck in Venice. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you rate us on iTunes, that would be super nice because it helps other listeners find out about us. Our theme music is by Kojak. Our artwork is by Aaron Quinn. I'm your host, Roshin Agnew, and the boss is Alan Bennett. You can find 12 Angry Minutes on Twitter at ThisHeadStuff and at Guts underscore magazine. Have a wonderful day and stay angry. Once I get going, I get really angry. You're really good. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.